0: We've been working our way through the storyline, little by little, the 11 books out of all the Old Testament that has that continuous narrative beginning to end of who God is and what he's doing in this world and how he works through humanity. And we've basically had four different sections, Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers creation and all that God does beforehand as he begins to prepare a people for himself. And then Joshua and Judges, he gets his people, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt and takes them to the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abram. And then we get into the kingdom, especially King Saul and David and Solomon, other kings of the divided kingdom. And because of the consequences of sin, the northern kingdom is taken into exile by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom is taken into exile by the Babylonians. And they're in exile for 70 years. But because of the big picture of God's plan, he's going to bring the southern kingdom back to the land because he's going to continue a forward movement toward the coming of the Messiah. So he gets the people back into the land. And that's the fourth time period of the 11 books that we're studying. It's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The overall subject matter of these two books is is fairly simple. We basically have the three returns back to the land. In Ezra 1 through 6 there's the first return under Zerubbabel, and then in Ezra 7 through 10 we have the second return and that's under the leadership of Ezra, and then Nehemiah, the entire book is the third return and that's under the leadership of Nehemiah. The focus of each book is just a little bit different. In Ezra, we have a focus on temple concerns, and so we have the building of the altar, the initiation of sacrifice, and the building of the temple, the completion of the temple. In Nehemiah, it's much more of a city concern, the building of the walls, the fortification of the city. As God's people come back to the land, they want to begin to fortify themselves and restore their prominence as a people of God. So we have these three returns. there's a focus on the covenant. there are many reforms that take place during this time. In many ways, Israel never recovers from their failure to be completely obedient back in judges chapter one and two. This is brought out. They did not drive the people out of the land. They did not destroy all the idols of the land. They never recovered. The same issues over and over continue to come up in their lives. They refuse to follow the Lord. And because of that, they walk away from Him. And then there's consequences because of that. But that's one level to look at it. Repeated rebellion, repeated sin. But the other level is God's continued patience With his people, his long suffering, the loving kindness, he continues to pour out. Israel has been disciplined. But as they come back into the land, sin is still a problem. And that's been part of the story of the Old Testament. As long as you have people, you have a sin problem. You can put righteous Noah on an ark and destroy all the wicked people. But when Noah gets off the ark, there's still a sin problem. You cannot eliminate this. You can take Israel... put them into discipline, into exile, in Babylon, and try to deal with their sin. But when you bring them back to the land, they've still got a sin problem. So God's mercy is still needed. God still continues to encourage his people back to covenant obedience. And so we're gonna see a lot of reforms um, throughout these two books. In fact, there's only a, a period of about 100 years that separates um, the different returns. And so you've got three returns happening in the time span of about 100 years. And they're actually reforms that are repeated. In the book of Ezra, you see the Passover is reinstituted. And then in Nehemiah, you see the Passover is reinstituted again. I mean, they're up and down. But at least Israel seems to be getting it. And they are dealing with their sin. In some ways, the, these two books are depressing because the same stuff is happening over again. But the way these books are encouraging is because at the same time we actually see the Israelites dealing with their sin. And that's why there's reform. There's times of repentance. The word of God is honored during this time. They'll stand for half a day reading the word and weeping over their sin. God is doing something special here. And so we're going to see some of these Um, particular concerns as we move our way through these books. Now, the the second big picture that I want us to see as we come into these books is at the end of 2 Kings, the word I would use to characterize that time period is destruction. As God begins to pour out his wrath on the nation, destruction abounds. But when we get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, God in his mercy is Restoring. And so the word I have for Ezra and Nehemiah is restoration. And so this destruction, the consequences of their sin, there's now restoration, not because Israel all of a sudden is a righteous people, but again, it's because of God's mercy. He continues to move his program forward. For instance, in 2 Kings 24, when the Babylonians come in, they take the, the t- utensils out of the temple. They remove the people from the land except for the poor who remain. Then in chapter 25, they burn the temple. They burn every house. They break down the walls. And again, they remove the utensils from the, from the temple. But when we get to Ezra Nehemiah, we leave the destruction behind. And now God begins the process of restoration. We see in Ezra chapter 1 and 6, these treasures that have been taken from the temple They're now restored, and and God actually gives the people money from the pagan nations. They begin to pour out blessing on God's people. And then when we think about the people being taken, except for the poor, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we now see the returns. Returns underneath Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The people come back to the land. Not everybody. Some people stay back, like Esther She remains in the land. There's no evidence of men like Daniel coming back. Some people stay in Babylon, but God begins to bring them back. Instead of destruction, we have restoration. And then also in Ezra chapter 3, we saw the temple burned and every house burned. And now the temple's being rebuilt and every house is being rebuilt. There's this repair taking place. In 2 Kings 25, the destruction, the walls are torn down. But in then Nehemiah 6, the walls are completed again. This, this building up of what God wants to do. In 2 Kings 25, the utensils were taken, but in Ezra 6:11, the temple the utensils are returned. So destruction, restoration. again, we've got to see the mercy of God in this. Now when we were talking about the storyline books, we mentioned that the prophetic books fit into the time period of 2 Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And I want to give you an example of how this works. If you take all the prophetic books, Isaiah to Malachi, and if, if it were possible to find the exact context in which they were prophesying, you could plug in each of these prophets into a specific situation because they were prophesying into a contemporary situation. Well, Ezra gives us a, a, an easy example to see exactly what is meant by this. If you look at chapter 5 of Ezra, the context of chapter 4, the altar's been built. They're now working on the temple, and adversaries come along. And they're creating hostility for the nation, and they stop the building, and so they're holding back. But chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem the name of God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. And when you go to the book of Haggai, Haggai and you read about this particular prophetic message He's the one that comes to the nation of Israel and says, hey, you who are living in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies desolate. In other words, he's the one that walks into this situation and encourages them to rebuild. And so that whole prophetic message fits right into the book of Ezra, right in between Ezra chapter 4, verse 24 and chapter 5, verse 1. That's where the prophetic message fits. And all of the prophetic messages of the Old Testament fit into the story. And they all have a common message, calling people back to covenant faithfulness. And that's what Haggai is doing. They need the temple. That's the dwelling place of God. That's where they offer sacrifices. That's where when relationship is broken, it can be restored. They need to have it. That's why the books of First and Second Chronicles are written to this particular time period because as they look back at the history of Israel, they're highlighting that prof- proper worship results in blessing. And so if they worship properly, they'll receive the blessings of the Lord. So Israel, build the temple. Get it back up so you can worship and you can receive that blessing. And so there's a lot of effort going in to encouraging these people. Now in the book of Ezra, one of the main issues that we see is the rebuilding of the temple. And I think there's something important for us to see theologically in the building of the temple. It's finally completed. When we get to chapter 6, in verse 13, it says, Then Tatnai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, um, and all their colleagues... Okay, they carry out everything that King Darius had told them to do. And the elders are all a part of this. Again, it's through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. They're doing all this stuff. Verse 15. And this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, these are the events that take place afterwards. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered for the dedication of this temple of God, one hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions, and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. This is a beautiful scene. After all this time being in exile, out of the land, everything's being rebuilt. And there's the temple, altar and temple. They can begin to reinstitute the worship of God and continue to worship and cry out to his name and give him the honor and the glory and the praise, the exaltation that's due him. The temple is built and they offer up all these sacrifices And this praise to God. And notice what it says, according to the law of Moses. They've got the scroll open and they're trying to follow this step by step. How do you cleanse the temple? How do the priests supposed to function? How are the sacrifices supposed to operate? We want to be obedient to God. His word is central to who we are and we will be faithful followers of him. And so it's a beautiful scene. But you've got to read this particular dedication. In light of the bigger picture of the Old Testament, there is something here that stands out prominently if you read it closely. And what stands out prominently is what is not found in this particular scene. And the only way you can see that is by thinking about other times in Israel's history when they dedicated a residence for God, the tabernacle or the temple. Think about the big picture. And so when we go back to Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, I think there's something significant here that we need to see. So in Exodus 40, in verse 34, the the tabernacle's been built just as the Lord had commanded. And then in verse 33, it says, thus Moses finished the work. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and notice what happens. And the glory of the Lord finished filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's this awesome scene where the glory comes down with such a manifestation that Moses can't even enter into the tabernacle. Now in 1 Kings 8, we have the account of the building of the first temple and they offer all of these sacrifices, and it's just a beautiful occasion where God is being glorified, and He's obviously being honored with this dedication. And it says in verse 10 of 1 Kings 8: And it came about when the priests came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I love the account over in Second Chronicles chapter 7 as well. It gives even, even much more of this glory that was taking place. Chapter 7 verse 1 of 2 Chronicles. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house and the priest could not enter And to the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Wow, what a beautiful scene that is. Here they build the temple. Fire comes down from heaven. The glory comes down. People fall flat on their faces. Man, it's an incredible event. When we even think about future, future temples, Revelation gives us a little bit of a picture of what's going to happen in the future concerning temples. In chapter 15 of Revelation in verse 8, Again, we see this idea. There's all these living creatures. There's crying out to the Lord, great, and marvelous, all your works. O Lord God, the almighty, etc. Verse eight, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Again, that heavenly scene of a temple filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, we've read all those passages and we come back to Ezra, chapter 6, in verses 13 through 18, and again, we look at this scene in light of everything we just read, tabernacle dedication, first temple dedication, the heavenly temple, and each one of them are filled with the glory of the Lord at this ominous moment, but we don't have that going on here in Ezra. And I think that that's important. If you step back and read all of the Old Testament and understand the larger picture of the Bible, what doesn't happen here is important for us to understand. There is no glory here. Now, is that because God has withdrawn his presence from his people? Is that because God is no longer moving toward them? No, God's going to be doing something, even in Haggai, We referenced that prophet earlier. Even in Haggai, he's already talked about this future temple that's coming. In his particular prophecy, he says in chapter 2, in verse 7, and I will shake all the nations. Remember, he's the one that's prophesying, trying to encourage the people to build a temple in Ezra's time. And I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. Look verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. No, Haggai even prophesies about a glory in the temple. When you look at the book of Ezekiel, it's a really a sad commentary on the glory of the Lord because of the abominations of the people. It gives this picture throughout the book of the glory of the Lord lifts out of the temple to the outer threshold to the gate of the city, to the mountain outside of the city, and then is gone. In other words, Israel is so contaminated that the Lord pulls himself out. But then when you get to the end of the book of Ezekiel, after God does all this refining and they face all the consequences in the coming day, again, the glory comes down to the temple. And so now here's the temple being built, but where's the glory? It isn't there. And let me tell you why I think so. I think because when we get to this particular point in the Old Testament, remember, Ezra and Nehemiah, this is where the story of the Old Testament ends, right here. And this Old Testament message is anticipating something greater in the New Testament. And so when we get to the building of this temple, God withholds his glory. This is my opinion. He withholds his glory because he's doing something bigger than this. It's no longer about this earthly temple. It's no longer about this little structure that they just built, even in Acts. Peter proclaims, God cannot be confined in walls, in a temple. He's bigger than that. And God is not gonna be confined to the Jew either. The gospel's gonna go to the nations. His glory's gonna be revealed to the world. And so when they build this temple, it doesn't show up because we're about to move toward the ever unfolding plan of God the glory of the Lord came will come but first God is going to continue the forward movement of his plan and that plan includes Messiah Messiah is going to come that plan includes the gospel going to the Gentiles that plan is going to extend beyond the Jews so that all the nations of the world can be blessed through Abram that's what's going to happen. And so when they build this temple and they offer their sacrifices, it's anticlimactic because God is moving everything toward a bigger climax. It's not about that temple, it's not about those Jews, it's about something much bigger the gospel. Going to the nations and God being glorified in every tongue and language and by every people group to the glory of his name. And so this introduces right now for us what I want to call a waiting. We're now waiting We're at the end of the Old Testament and we're waiting. And Israel's going to continue to wait. It's during this time period, kings to Nehemiah, that all the prophets are prophesying. And what are they prophesying? They're prophesying about one who's going to come. And when they build this temple, that one isn't here yet. They begin to talk about the one who's going to be our peace. They begin to talk about the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, who's going to come and rule and reign with power and authority. And when you get to the New Testament, the disciples are looking for this one. And when Jesus comes onto the scene and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that's where God is moving things. When we get to the New Testament, the disciples meet Jesus and they begin to whisper to one another, hey, we think he's here. We found the anointed one, the Messiah. We think he's in our midst and there's all this word passing around. We think he's here. Why? Because Israel's looking. It's going to be much bigger than this. But even in the early part of the New Testament with the disciples, it's going to be bigger than they imagined too. God's plan is going to just explode throughout the world. And right here, we have a pause. We have a waiting. God's people are being obedient and that's good, but there's more. And that's that's how the message of the Old Testament ends is, wait, there's more. Now, what's good about this particular time period is even though we see Israel sinning over and over and over, they're finally beginning to get it. When we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a beautiful prayer here that is prayed by Nehemiah that recounts the history of Israel and it demonstrates for us that maybe the glory of the Lord's not coming down in the temple. Maybe there's not this climax. It's kind of anticlimactic, but there is something good going on here. The people are getting it. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, going all the way back to the verse 5 and 6. He lifts up praise. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone art the Lord. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all of them. The heavenly host bows down before you. There's no worshiping heavenly host here. Why? Because they bow down to the God of all gods. And he begins with this greatness of the Lord. And what he's going to do in the verses that follow You're going to see this cycle of goodness and rebellion. Goodness and rebellion. You're going to see how God has been good, so good to his people. And what did they do? They rebelled. Look in verses 7 through 15. You alone are God. You chose Abram. Verse 8, you did find his heart faithful before you and made a covenant. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. Verse 10, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. They passed through it. Verse 12, with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, pillar of fire by night. And then you came down to Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. And you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made them to know them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments and statutes of law through Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. You told them to enter the land in order to possess it, which you swore to give them. Wow, you can hear Nehemiah's voice. God, you are most to be praised. You are a good God. And Nehemiah reflects on all that's happened historically. He says, God, you have been so good. And then look, what is the rebellion that follows? But, verse 16, they, our fathers, acted arrogantly, became stubborn, and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds. Remember, signs produce belief, produce worship. And Moses says in Deuteronomy, remember, 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 don't you forget. And Nehemiah says, they didn't remember. They didn't remember all those things that you did. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Remember all the things that we saw in Exodus in in, uh, Numbers? They would come into a difficulty and they'd say, oh, back in Egypt. Remember back in Egypt? Pots of meat. Oh, we had it so good back there. Were there not enough graves back there that you've brought us out here to die? Let's appoint a leader to go back. That's what they said at the golden calf incident. Let's fashion a God to go before us and appoint us a leader to go back with us. Their rebellion, their stiff-neckedness, their refusal to bend the knee to God. It's so clear to see. How rebellious they were. But then the cycle continues. Even though they're rebellious, look at the goodness of God. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You did not forsake them. Isn't that amazing? God's goodness. And they treat it with contempt and rebel. And what does God give them in return? More goodness. Goodness. He continues to pour out loving kindness to them because he's gracious and compassionate. Verse 18, we see their rebellion again, even when they made for themselves a calf. And they said, this is your God. Verse 19, we see the goodness again. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them. And you've got the pillar of cloud there, the pillar of fire guiding them. You gave Your good spirit to instruct them. Manna you gave them. Water you gave them for 40 years. Their feet didn't swell. Their clothes didn't wear out. You gave them kingdoms and people. You allowed them to set a boundary. They took possession. Wow. God continues to be good to them all the way down through verse 25. Look, Look what it says at the end. And they reveled. In your great goodness. They took a bath in it. It was so wonderful. They were filled to the full of all you were doing for them, God. And then what's Israel's response to all of this? But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law. Listen to this image. Cast your law behind their backs. Done with that. Don't need that anymore. And killed your prophets who admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. You delivered them into the hand of oppressors when they cried to you in in their distress. Listen, the great goodness of God, you heard from heaven according to your great compassion and you gave them deliverers who delivered them from their oppressors. And so how does Israel respond to that? Verse 28, more rebellion. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. And so you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies. And when they cried out to you from heaven, many times you did rescue them according to your compassion. God's goodness seen once again. And you admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. How did Israel respond to God's mercy more rebellion. How'd they respond to his goodness? More stiff-neckedness. They acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments. And we see it continue on verse 30. However, you did bear with them for many years, long-suffering, patient, and admonished them through your prophets, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. Come back. God in his mercy just continuing to reach out people and pursue them for his glory Verse 30, middle of it, yet they would not give an ear. Therefore, you had to give them over again. Verse 31, goodness abounding. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. This is a summary of the Old Testament that we all need to grasp is God a God of mercy in the New Testament and a God of wrath in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. Look at this summary. He's constantly pouring out goodness even though Israel's is constantly being rebellious and stiff-necked and acting arrogantly. God is good, good. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's loving kind to them continuously. And Nehemiah recognizes all that. And he ends this particular prayer in verses 32 to 37, and basically what he says is, we give ourselves to you, God. We give ourselves to you. You can do whatever you want to with us. We are yours. We give ourselves to you. Please don't see our difficulty as insignificant. We're in a tough time. We're in a hard place, but we give ourselves to you because better to have you in a hard place than to be in a good place without you. That's Nehemiah's heart. And I want to show you what's going on in his prayer. Remember the prayer began in the second part of verse five and verse six with the greatness of the Lord and how awesome and how powerful he is. And now he ends with this desire and this request to the Lord or this, these words to the Lord of now we yield ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to you, Lord. And the reason I want you to see those two components is because to recognize who he is and to yield yourself to him, what is that? That is knowing that he is the Lord. Because knowing that he is the Lord is not just intellectual, it's experiential. It's a knowledge of who God is that affects the way life is lived. And that's what Nehemiah is doing for us right here. I know who you are. I yield myself to you. And he's the spokesperson for the people. Maybe Israel's getting something right here. Maybe after all this time of all these hardships, seeing God's great compassion, his loving kindness, his graciousness just being poured out on them continually in light of all their rebellion. They look back and they see the history of this. They say, God, you are worth following. You are great. You are the only God. You are above all Gods. We yield ourselves to you. That's knowing that He is the Lord. And that's the beauty of Nehemiah and what's going on after the exile. Oh we've still got problems. Problems abound with the nation still. Many reforms are taking place. In fact, it's sad how the book of Nehemiah ends. When you get to the end of the book, again we have the problem of mixed marriages. One more time, there it is, and I, I love Nehemiah. He's a, he's a feisty man. Verse 23 says, "In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab." As for their children, half-spoken the language of Ashdod, none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. See, how can you understand the law of God if you can't speak the language of the people? They were so being penetrated by the world around them but look what Nehemiah does. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons and for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among him, among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign wisdom women caused even him to sin, Do we then hear about you that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? So he jumps on them and beats on them, pulls their hair out, swears at them and forces them to make this commitment. And then that's how the book ends, basically. They're still in a bad place, but they're responding. They're seeking the Lord. There's a sense in which they understand a little bit about what it means to know that he is the Lord, despite the fact that they've been in a difficult place, despite the fact that they have been rebellious throughout this time, something's beginning to sink in. But when the temple's built, no glory comes down. Why? Because God doesn't have favor for his people? No, because we're looking for something bigger. Ultimately, Ezra and Nehemiah brings us to the end of the Old Testament. When we get done with this book right here, this page right here in my Bible, This is the end of the Old Testament message. All these other books fit into this message somewhere else, but this is the end. There's no glory that comes down to the temple. Something bigger is about to take place. I want us to think about the end of this Old Testament message. In Joshua, the nation took the land. In Judges, they've got a problem. They didn't drive out the people, and therefore they didn't destroy all the religious practices as well. Then in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings, the, the nation fails constantly because they're swept away by these idols repeatedly. We even see that problem in Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, in Ezra and Nehemiah, both books end with the same failure, mixed marriages. Israel never recovers from that particular failure to obey that took place back in the book of Joshua. It becomes a thorn, it becomes a snare for them all the way through to the end. But this is not gonna stop God. We can see Nehemiah in his prayer for the people. They're starting to get it. You are the great God, we yield ourselves to you. They've rebuilt the temple, they've begun sacrifice again. The glory didn't come down, but that's okay. They're moving in a direction. God's continuing to carry out his plan. He's got the people back in the land. The seed can come from them. And so we begin to move our way to the end of the Old Testament. The way I like to understand the Old Testament is this. It's basically prelude to the New Testament. The the Old Testament is not... A contained story with a complete beginning, complete end, in and of itself. It requires something more. When you get to the end of Nehemiah, if this was all there was in your Bible, you would stop short. Your your breath would just stop and you'd say, Wait, there's got to be more. This can't be the end. What about the promises? God, what about your people? Isn't there a bigger promise of restoration? What about that eternal kingdom? What about all the blessings that you're going to pour about them? What about the new covenant, the new heart, you know, where where they wouldn't have to teach their neighbor anymore. Know the Lord because they already would because the law would be written on the heart. What about that, Lord? Where is that? I haven't seen that. I want to know. And that takes us to the New Testament. Something bigger is going to take place. Something bigger than Israel has ever seen. And Peter tells us angels long to look into this stuff. It's incredible to them. They long to understand what this salvation is all about. How this God not only has been taking care of these people and been gracious to them, but now he's going to take that goodness and he's going to spread it throughout the entire world. The angels long to look into that. But that's what goes on. When we step back and look at the big picture, God created this world. In the bookends of Scripture, you got Eden and the paradise, the perfect world. And you've got heaven, the paradise, the perfect world. But then life as we know it in between. In Eden, we've got this perfect place of peace and rest and relationship with God. Life worked the way it was supposed to work. And then we get the entrance of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And the impact of this, immediately, the first family, their children feels this. The entire world spirals down in such an incredibly sinful way that God destroys the whole world by a flood. By the time we get to chapter 6 of the Bible, this sin impacts this relationship. This sin impacts these relationships, relationship with God, relationships with others. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the whole world, Eden is lost. But there's hope. There's hope for restoration. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman... And the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent is going to do a little bit of damage to the heel. There's going to be some bruises along the way. Israel has felt that bruising. You and I have felt that bruising. We bump into it every day. But a day is coming when the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent, completely doing away with evil, ushering in a new kingdom and restoring the peace and the rest and the perfect relationship with God and with one another. That day is coming, Revelation 21 and 22. We await that day. It is a reality that Eden has been lost, but hope is still there. And so from Genesis six eleven all the way through the book of Malachi, we see restoration. God is restoring humanity. Instead of destroying everybody in the flood, Noah is saved. And this begins the process of restoration. We slide down, spiral down to the Tower of Babel, but God still works with a remnant. Abram is called into a special relationship. Abram's family grows into a nation and God doesn't forget them. He enters into a covenant relationship with them as well. Restoration, a chosen people in a chosen land. He has to discipline his people, even take them into exile, but God continues to work. We get to the Ezra and Nehemiah, we still got more reforms. A lot of work needs to be done, but God continues to work. Sin is still a problem. Sin has been a problem all the way through. It's got to be dealt with. There's a bigger plan that God is doing. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many attempts to restore peace and rest in relationship with God. But this is what we see, especially when we get to the end of the Old Testament. Remember, Nehemiah ends the story. Through Samuel, Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, what we begin to see is a growing need. There's a growing failure, but there's also a growing focus. And that focus is found in the prophets where they begin to talk about this one who is going to come. Let me read one passage, Isaiah chapter nine. There could be so many others that we could look at, but it talks about the gloom and the darkness at the end of chapter eight. And then chapter nine, verse one, but there will be no more gloom for her who's in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And this is fulfilled in Jesus when he comes. This particular prophecy right here fulfilled with Jesus in the New Testament. And it says... You will multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest, as with men when they rejoice, when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now notice this, for a child will be born to us The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, when you look at what's going on here, there's a growing need. There's growing failure. Is anything good going to happen in this relationship with Israel? Oh, the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish this. Sin will not stop it. The rebellion of Israel will not stop it. Enemy nations cannot stop it. Satan cannot thwart it. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. There is a growing focus here. The hope rests not on Israel getting their act together. It rests not on Israel building the temple and the glory coming down. No, it rests on Messiah And so everything in the Old Testament begins to point toward this time. The new covenant is coming. The one who's going to come, the covenant that's going to come, and it's going to be a law written on the heart. And in the church today, we're living in the fulfillment of this right now. This is the greatest of times to ever be alive because the new covenant is here. The kingdom is here. It's already, but it's not yet. Why? Because the king came. And he came to die. Why? Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins permanently. The son of God died on the cross so that we could have access and come boldly before the throne of God. And have fellowship with him and with with one another. What was destroyed at, in the Garden of Eden at the entrance of sin, relationship with God and relation with one another, God now calls us to love God with all our heart, soul, might, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. and he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us, the law written on our heart, empowering us to do so. The kingdom is here already, but it's not yet because the king came and although the disciples and his followers wanted the kingdom They didn't get it. Why? Because God's doing something bigger. And Jesus' message to the Jews basically and to the early church was, it's not just about the Jew. It's gonna go to the Gentiles because the gospel is gonna go to the nations and then the end will come. When it goes to the nations, then the end will come. And the task isn't done yet. And God in his patience... His graciousness, his compassion is continuing to hold back his wrath that would be justified to pour out on a sinful world because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come into repentance. And so the gospel goes out. And the king who came once and died so that we could be reconciled to God is going to come again and establish his kingdom. You see, the Old Testament is just prelude to all of this. The sacrificial system, oh, it was... It it was really important to the nation of Israel. It's a beautiful picture of God giving access, people access to him. They can with blood atonement come into his presence and have fellowship. But the sacrificial system in in the tabernacle, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to where God is taking everything. It's simply a foreshadowing, as beautiful as it was. It is nothing to be compared to what's happening. The Old Testament is moving in a direction, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, but they're nothing to be compared to the fulfillment of the new covenant and all that God's doing in the world. He's inviting many people to the party, the fellowship, the celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb that one day awaits those who are followers of Him. And we need to bring our lives into this perspective There is no other reason for us to live as followers of Jesus Christ than to enter his eternal plan of calling the nations to himself. And so as we follow him, we live with purpose. And what is it that gives our life purpose? It's living for his purposes. It's aligning our heart with his and saying nothing else really matters but the proclamation of the gospel to the world. The gospel needs to go forth. Why? Because that's what our Father wants. It brings glory to him. Missions is about worship because people get to see God in all his glory. He's already displayed it in the heavens and he's got it in the gospel and people are to see him so they can worship him and follow him with their whole hearts. The Old Testament is just prelude to the New Testament. It's just the beginning of this incredible work that God is going to do And we don't even have all of God contained in here throughout all of eternity. We're going to stand in awe, learning more and more about God. There'll never be a moment when we stop and say, "Ah, been there, done that, got God figured out. It's never going to happen. It will be this constant, continuous praise to the greatness and the glory of his name. We'll never get enough of it throughout all of eternity. And the way we get to express that now is by telling others about him. See? See God, see Him. Do you see what He's done for you? He's communicated to you. This is the gospel. It's for you. This eternal God wants to have relationship with you. We proclaim that message. There's nothing more meaningful in life than to praise Him by proclaiming His greatness to other people. And so we do. We recognize that we become a part of this story. It's not just something we read about in the Old Testament. These ancient days, this long time ago story separated from us. No, it's a continuous story. And as the church and as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are now brought into the story. And we take our marching orders from him because that's where life is found. That's where joy is found. And when we find ourselves in difficulty, even though we don't understand God's plan, We find ourselves in difficulty. It's because he wants us to know more about him and to learn to trust him and to live in light of his glory. So we find ourselves there. We yield ourselves to him. We bow ourselves to him. We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and do what's right. We don't come over here and light our own fire and see if we can't somehow figure this thing out and make our life work better. No, we give ourselves to him constantly. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, I'm convinced that persecution is going to grow in the days ahead of us. It's gonna feel dark. And we've gotta hold on to in the darkness, which we know to be true about God, and we continue to yield ourselves to Him. It's about Him, it's not about our situation. What does it mean to know that He's the Lord, to know who He is intellectually? No, it's experientially, it's who He is into our everyday life, and we live in light of His honor and glory. If that's what he wants to allow happen in our lives, we yield to him. He knows what he's doing. He's good. And everything that comes into our life is through the hands of God. And it's for our good. It's his gracious acts in this world as he accomplishes his purpose. And so we yield ourselves. So we count it all joy when we encounter our various trials, temptations. We have a peace that passes all understanding. We sing a song in the midst of darkness. We'll gladly stand in the darkness rather than build a fire for the light because we've got God. He's a great God and we yield ourselves to him. That's where the story of the Old Testament brings us to the greatness of God. From beginning to end, we've got sinful humanity. But from beginning to end, we've got a gracious God who pursues people. He doesn't make it about people. It's always about him. He invites people to bring honor and glory to him. Why? Because it's for our good to do so. That's where life is found. And we find ourselves worshiping the creature, the creator rather than the creature because it's futile. It's futile to worship anything but the the great one from whom all blessings flow. And so we give our lives to him. That's the message of the Old Testament. A God who relentlessly pursues people so that we can have a reconciled heart to Him and bring Him the honor and the glory due His name. Blessed be the name of the Lord.